It is amazing to be with you this evening. Um, Ray Dunn, thank you very much, Ray, reminded me that my relationship with St. Paul's and St. George's goes back 30 years, which makes me feel very ancient. <laughs> um, for those of you who don't know me, my name's Rachel Mash. I was a um, community worker in this church way back then. I was married in this church. I married my niece in this church. Um, and we've had this long, ongoing relationship with St. Paul's and St. George's. Bob, my husband, sends his greetings. Unfortunately, he couldn't stay in the UK as long as I was able to do. Um, I am currently working as the environmental coordinator for the church in southern Africa, which is a sort of smallish area which includes South Africa, Swaziland, Lesotho, Namibia, Angola, and Mozambique. So it keeps me out of action. Let's pray. Lord God, this evening we want to pray that you would open our ears, that we would hear you. Open our hearts, that we would feel you. And open our minds, that we would understand in your name. Amen. Since I left St. Paul's and St. George's, my first 10 years I worked as a parish priest in a township outside Cape Town. And then God led me into HIV ministry, and I've worked in HIV ministry for the following 10 years. And then my husband, Bob, who is a doctor, went over to an HIV conference in Toronto. And he came back from that conference and he said, there's something worse than HIV coming down the line. And I thought, mm -mm, can't be. HIV is completely devastating, completely devastating in Africa. And he had seen the inconvenient truth and we watched that movie and we heard about climate change and it seemed a bit distant. And then over the years since then, we began to see the impact of climate change in the countries that we serve. And about two years ago, God called me to follow this call to be involved in care for creation and climate justice. I want to share with you this evening a bit about the impact of climate change on people that I work with. The first impact is that climate change obviously is raising temperatures. A couple of months ago, I was in Namibia, which is quite far to the north and very, very dry. And temperatures can get as high as 42 degrees. And in Namibia, most of the people have small little farms with maybe three or four cattle. And those cattle are their bank account. It's their future. The cattle is the education for their children's future. It is the money that they save for their wedding of their daughter. And the cattle are their lifeblood. And the drought was so bad in Namibia that the government said to the people, you should slaughter your cows because they're going to be so thin, they're going to die of starvation and you will get nothing. And people shared how they wept as they brought their cattle to the market and the prices just plummeted, and they got hardly anything for their cows. In Southern Africa, as the temperatures rise, rich people turn on their aircon, and poor people go hungry. Unemployed people are being pushed off the land because subsistence farmers can no longer make it. And I want to show you a picture of the impact on agriculture of climate change. This graph, if you can see it, it shows the projected changes in agricultural productivity up to 2080 due to climate change. 
The red areas are going to see a drop of 50% in agricultural productivity. So if you can see Southern Africa, parts of South America, Northern Africa, we are going to look at agricultural productivity dropping by 50%. And that's food prices, that's hunger, that's poverty. But the interesting thing is that we look at the north of Europe and we see that agricultural productivity is green, which means it actually will increase. This is why we don't talk so much now about climate change, we talk about climate justice. Because climate change is an issue of justice. And it probably is the biggest human rights issue of our time. The second impact on us in southern Africa is extreme weather events. Strangely enough, on the west side of the area that I serve, we see drought. On the east side, Mozambique, we're seeing huge floods. That is because as the temperatures rise, the air is able to hold more water. For every 1% increase, the air can hold 7% more water. So whereas previously a cloud would rain over the continent, now we see a flash flood near the coast and we see drought inland. In Mozambique, hundreds of thousands of people have lost their homes. Farms have been washed away. People have lost their livelihood. And it repeats itself every two or three years, and the floods are becoming heavier and heavier, and the people are beginning to lose hope. The other impact of these extreme weather events is that infrastructure becomes destroyed. Money that should be going to build new roads, new hospitals, new schools is being wasted to rebuild what has already been destroyed. The third impact, and we feel this because I live in Cape Town, is sea level rise. Looking at the coastal cities that I serve, such as Maputo, Durban, Cape Town, and so on, there are great fears of sea level rise. The city of Cape Town tells us that there is an 80% chance of massive flooding in the next 20 years, and we are already building walls next to some of the sea areas. And they say that the most affected part in Cape Town is actually where our sewage works are, which would flood the city with sewage. The fourth impact of climate change is a big one. As areas of Africa become less viable for people to live in, we are seeing an increase in civil war and in violence, which leads to climate refugees. The first civil war that was called a climate change war was the war in Darfur, in Sudan. Our province is linked with South Sudan, and we, the violence is broken out again. The conflict in Darfur was driven by climate change. According to the United Nations Environmental Program, they say that rainfall fell by up to 30% over a 40-year period. The Sahara is advancing one mile a year. Sahara is advancing one mile a year, which evaporates water holes and threatens vast areas, and people begin to fight over water rights. We can say the same about Syria. I suppose you know the basic story in Syria, but from 2006 to 2010, there was an unprecedented drought. 
which fought, changed the country from the breadbasket of that area into a grain importer. Farmers abandoned their homes. They say that the school roll dropped by up to 80% in certain areas and flooded Syria's cities, which were already struggling to sustain the influx of a million people from the war in Iraq. The government largely ignored these warning signs and violent protests broke out. A preventable drought-triggered humanitarian crisis sparked the civil war in 2011 and eventually ISIS. Climate change does not cause civil war. Climate change creates the conditions in which violence and civil war break out and leads to vast numbers of refugees. So with that in mind, let us turn to our reading for today. In our reading, we have this picture of this huge crowd of refugees who are standing by the sea and crying out to God for help. They are running from violence in Egypt. Pharaoh and his chariots are chasing them and they see there is no hope. We know that the masses of people who are waiting in Calais, the people who are desperately trying to get across the Mediterranean in leaky boats, many of them come from areas where climate change is having a huge impact. Syria, Eritrea, Somalia. Climate change has not brought them here. Climate change is creating the conditions that have led to the violence which chases them away. So if we picture the refugees from Egypt, Israelite refugees who are fleeing from violence in Egypt, massed here by the sea, and if we picture the climate change refugees and those refugees' numbers are going to grow and grow, the globe is facing a huge crisis. What are we called to do as Christians? Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn and camp near Pi Hairoth, between Migdol and the sea. They are to camp by the sea directly opposite Baalzebon, and Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. So the first message that God gives to us in the face of climate justice, climate change, people sometimes become despondent, they become hopeless, and everything seems dark. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. 
We are not people who are hopeless. We are people of hope. We are people of faith. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. If our reading were to end there, then maybe we would say, well, it's God's problem, big world, nothing I can do about it. Let the governments, let the politicians do something. God will bring deliverance. But if we continue and we read the next verse, listen to this wonderful verse in verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Sounds like Moses has just said, oh, don't worry, God will sort it out. And then the Lord says to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. You raise your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so the Israelites can go through the sea on dry land. I, meanwhile, will harden the hearts of the Egyptians. God will bring deliverance, but God says to us, I want you to act. I want you to be my prophets. I want you to reach out the stick. I want you to help to save the, the um, Israelites. I am calling you. And our theme for today is led. The people of Israel needed to be led by Moses. If Moses had done nothing, we wonder what would have happened. They would either drowned or they would probably been murdered by those chariots. God said to Moses, you lead my people. The people of Israel needed to be led. When we think of climate change and environmental degradation, we have to ask the question, where is the church? Why is the church not leading? For many people in the church, the call to care for creation is an additional add-on. It's for those greenies, those environmental people who eat carrots and make us feel really rather guilty. It's not core business for us. We had a meeting on Thursday night and somebody who was there said something which has stuck with me. As Christians, it's not okay for us to say poverty doesn't matter or homelessness doesn't matter, or child abuse doesn't matter. You deal with that. But somehow, it's okay for us to say, I'm not bothered about the environment. Is it? Why is that? Why is it that we as Christians seem to see that careful creation is an added extra, and it is not core business for the church. If we go back to the very beginning of the Bible, God has just created this beautiful planet and the very first commandment that we were given as the human race, way before Moses was given the Ten Commandments, Adam and Eve were given the first commandment. In Genesis 2.15, we read, God put human beings in the garden to work it and to care for it. So the first commandment the human race was given by God was care for my planet. Look after this garden planet that I've given to you. 
And we, the human race, have sat back, and now we hear that 60% of the ecosystems on which we depend for life are degraded, and many of them beyond repair. The deserts are growing. We are cutting down the jungles, the lungs of this planet. Our seas are polluted. Species are going extinct. And our brothers and sisters are dying of starvation and are dying in civil war. And yet still we say, it's not core business for the church. Where and how did the church lose the plot. I want to share a short history of the church and creation. Many of us have not been raised, myself included, with a theology of creation. We have been taught that our spiritual home is in heaven. We sing those wonderful hymns like, Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrims through this barren land. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. This world is not important. The spiritual home of heaven is where we are going. But at the beginning of the church, the church had a strong theology of creation. Science and faith spoke the same language. The early church fathers studied two books. They had the scriptures that they read and studied, and they had the book of nature. Theological students had to go out into nature and to learn about God from nature. And they understood that nature is also full of the presence of God. Their clear understanding of cosmology was based on the Genesis story, that humans are called to love God, to love one another, and to love the earth. The discovery that the earth moved around the sun came as a bombshell. The dethronement of the earth as central to the universe challenged their theology of creation, and they condemned Galileo as a heretic. Science and religion began to develop on separate paths. The theology of creation was lost and the church narrowed their theology and focused on the Christian story of human beings. Salvation was limited to human beings. As their understanding of the universe was threatened, the church moved away from a theology embracing God's love for the whole of creation, and the gospel was narrowed down. The split between church and science widened with Darwin, and his discoveries around evolution. And most of the religious world of that time clung to the original seven days of creation. Religion was unable to enter into creative dialogue with the new scientific discoveries, so they ignored them, and they focused on me and my relationship with God. During the Age of the Enlightenment, science was impoverished by the lack of spiritual insights. Science could answer the question, how, but not the question, why. God was seen as a clockmaker who had set things up and just left them to go, a machine for humans to control, and nature was no longer filled with the presence of God. 
Nature was objectified and seen as something for us to use and abuse and have dominion over. Something to manipulate to satisfy human need and greed. The Industrial Revolution primarily took part in place in Christian lands. The sense of the spiritual value of creation had been lost. The church turned inward and focused on the salvation of human beings. The scientific community, meanwhile, developed a story of salvation themselves. Salvation is through progress. Salvation is through development. Technology will save the world. And as we know, some of those dreams have turned into nightmares. The Christian world has moved from a theology of wonder to a theology of plunder. For us in Africa, colonization and Christianity came hand in hand with a theology of domination and taking and abusing the land. Faced with the biggest crisis that we have probably ever faced as a human race, the church needs to rediscover a theology of care for creation. An iconic moment for the human race was the first viewing of our planet Earth from outer space. This beautiful picture of the blue planet was the first time that we realized that we are part of something bigger than our own small nations. This beautiful blue planet was given to us to care for. Scientists are now revealing more mysteries, and we are realizing that this is a wondrous planet that we are part of. So, if we can confess to our failures of the past, how can we, like Moses, be leaders rather than followers? What is happening at the moment is care for creation is often seen to be something new age or something that NGOs, non-government organizations, get involved in. It is not new age. It is old age. We need to return to our theology of the past. We need to learn from those wonderful theologians of the past who embraced a careful theology because we have lost something very important. The Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? You tell the Israelites to move on. You raise your staff. You stretch out your hand. Careful creation is core business for us as Christians. John 3.16 tells us that God so loved the world that he sent his son. It doesn't say God so loved the humans on the world that he sent his son. He loved the world God is raising up people like Moses. God is raising up his prophets. I'm sure you're aware of the recent encyclical, the recent document that Pope Francis produced. And if you do get a chance, read it. It is beautiful, simple language, very accessible. It is taking the Catholic Church by storm. It's called On Care for Our Common Home. 
And it's, in Latin, it's laudate si, which means praise be to you, which is the first line of the canticle by St. Francis that praises God with all of his creation. It is perhaps the most important papal document of the last 100 years. It's not just addressed to Catholics. It's not just addressed to Christians. It is addressed to everybody on earth. Normally, papal documents are limited to the Catholic community. In this encyclical, the Pope says, I would like to enter into dialogue with all people about our common home. This is what he says. The ecological crisis is a summons to profound interior conversion. It must be said that some committed and prayerful Christians, with the excuse of realism and pragmatism, tend to ridicule expressions of concern for the environment. Others are passive. They choose not to change their habits, and thus they become inconsistent. So what we all need is an ecological conversion, whereby the effects of our encounter with Jesus Christ become evident in our relationship with the world around us. Living our vocation to be protectors of God's handiwork is essential to a life of virtue. It is not an optional or secondary aspect of our Christian experience. The Anglican community around the world says the same. They have identified the fifth mark of mission is to care for creation. Caring for creation is part of our mission here on earth. The second Moses that I would like to point to is Archbishop Tutu. Archbishop Tutu, he's over 80. He's not well. He's suffering from prostate cancer. And he has identified climate change as his last battle. He gave his life to battle apartheid, and now he is battling climate change. I want to read a bit from Archbishop Tutu. Never before in history have human beings been called on to act collectively in defense of the earth. As a species, we have endured world wars, epidemics, famine, slavery, apartheid, and many other hideous consequences of religion, class, race, gender, and ideologies. People are extraordinarily resilient. The earth has proved resilient too. It's managed to absorb most of what's been thrown at it since the Industrial Revolution and the invention of the internal combustion engine until now. Because the science is clear, this sponge that cushions and sustains us, our environment, is saturated with carbon. If we don't limit global warming to two degrees or less, we are doomed to a period of unprecedented instability, insecurity, and loss of species. As responsible citizens of this world, sisters and brothers of one family, the human family, God's family, we have a duty to persuade our leaders to lead us in a new direction, and we must pray for the climate talks which will take place in Paris. Reducing our carbon footprint is not just a technical scientific necessity. It has emerged as the human rights challenge of our time. Two prophets of our time. I believe 
that St. Paul's and St. George's has a crucial role within the Christian community here in Edinburgh and even in Scotland. You are respected. Many people look to your leadership. And I want to challenge you tonight to say, how can this church take up the challenge of care for creation to make a difference to this core business of the church? A group of people have met on Thursday and during today, and they've said, I would like to do something. I want to get involved in mainstreaming care for creation here at St. Paul's and St. George's. And if you feel that God is touching your heart and you would like to do something, I want to ask you to chat to Suzelle here at the front at the end of the service and just give her your details. And a meeting will be arranged with those who are interested to see how St. Paul's and St. George's can become a prophetic church in this area of care for creation. What can we do? We are all people who influence other people. We influence our friends, our peer groups, our families, our universities. We can all influence others. The first thing is that we mustn't act out of guilt. We must act out of love. We must act because God is calling us to love this earth and to love our brothers and sisters on the other side of the world who are being impacted. Romans 8 has this incredible verse, verse 22, which says, the whole of creation is groaning. And this is how creation feels at the moment. The whole of creation is groaning. And verse 19 says, creation waits with eager longing for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Creation is in pain and creation is saying, where are the sons and daughters of God and why are they not doing anything to help? God is calling you. Out of love for creation, out of love for this beautiful planet that God has given you, out of love for your brothers and sisters, to a more simple lifestyle. Here are some words from Pope Francis. Simple acts which directly and significantly affect the world around us, such as avoiding the use of plastic and paper, reducing water consumption, separating our rubbish, cooking only what can reasonably be consumed, showing care for other living beings, using public transport or carpooling, planting trees, turning off unnecessary lights or any number of other practices reflect a generous creativity which bring out the best in human beings. Reusing something instead of immediately discarding it when done for the right reasons can be an act of love which expresses our own dignity. The second challenge, I think, is for us to reconnect with nature to consciously say, how do I connect with nature? When I plan my holidays, can I plan to go camping rather than going to some indoor place with my kids? Can I plan to take a picnic rather than going to the mall? 
Can I walk through the park rather than jumping in the car? Can I find a sacred space, even if it's in my home with a little plant, where I can connect with nature? Can I teach my grandkids to grow a tomato? How do I connect with nature? Can I learn the names of the birds that I see and I just say it's another little brown job? You cannot love what you don't know. A third challenge is for us to look at our investments. Fossil fuels are causing huge pain around the world. There came a time in the history of slavery where people said, slavery is immoral. Yes, we may take a financial hit, but we can no longer support slavery. And the world has come to that point where we need to take our investments out of fossil fuels and put them into other things. And as a church, I want to challenge you. Are we preaching and praying about this key part of our Christian faith? Or have we relegated it to a few people, the greenies on the side? I want to end with the words of Archbishop Tutu. There is a word that we use in South Africa that describes human relationships, Ubuntu. It says, I am because you are. My successes and my failures are bound up in yours. We are made for each other, for interdependence and interconnectedness. Together with our brothers and sisters from other parts of the world, we can change the world for the better. Who can stop climate injustice? We can. You and you and you and me. And it's not just that we can stop it. We have a responsibility to do so that began in the genesis of humanity when God commanded the first human inhabitants of the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it to care for it and not to abuse it. God so loved this world that he sent his only son. I'm going to ask, I'm going to end by asking us to sing again that wonderful song that reminds us that God so loved the world. And as you sing these very well-known words, I want you to have a picture in your mind. God so loved the world. Jesus is the savior of the world, not just the human beings on this world, but the whole of creation. We don't have to be people of despair. If you are feeling despondent about climate change, do not have despair, because Jesus is the savior of the world, not just the human beings on it. And God is calling us to work with him to save this world. Amen.